Prestige listeners, it's Derek. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and comrade, Danny Bessner, and we are very lucky and grateful uh, to be joined today by Ganul Toll, founding director of the Middle East Institute's Turkey program. She is the author of Erdogan's War, A Strongman's Struggle at Home and in Syria uh, about Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Maybe you've heard of him. He's been in the news lately. So it's uh, <laughs> just you know a little bit here and there. Uh, Ganul, thank you so much for coming on the program. No, thanks for having me. Uh, we're really uh, pleased to be doing this, and uh, especially right now, it's it's somewhat timely with the uh, the election going on. Uh, let's talk about Recep Tayyip Erdogan and talk about your book. Uh, why did you choose the lens of Erdogan's interactions with Syria uh, as the kind of focal point of a, a look at his presidency or his uh leadership of Turkey. What does Syria tell us about Erdogan's development as a politician and as somebody with a claim to, let's say, regional or world influence? Well, Syria, uh, to me, was the perfect place to trace Erdogan's domestic evolution from a conservative Democrat when he first came to power and later starting from 2011 uh, to an Islamist and from 2015 onwards a nationalist. So if you look at all those stages in his political career, I, I think you'll see the reflections of those transformations in Syria very, very clearly. But but maybe before that, I could say a few words about how I decided to write this book. I remember I was having this conversation with a Western diplomat, and that was in 2012. The, the Arab uprisings had just started there, and Erdogan had just won another victory in 2011 elections and he was holding a, a, a uh, his party congress and he was joined by by the region's uh, Islamist leaders. And as I was sitting in that uh, Washington cafe, this Western diplomat told me, uh, once an Islamist, always an Islamist, re- referring to Erdogan. So the underlying assumption there was that uh, everything that was wrong with uh, Erdogan's new Turkey had something to do with his Islamist ideology. And I found that assumption problematic. And then the second... I, I'm said, sorry, a Western yeah. diplomat oversimplifying something in the Middle East? Surely this has <laughs> never happened in recorded history. I'm sorry. I just, I was so shocked to hear that. Please go ahead. <laughs> so I had to write a book. I, I was so shocked. And the second assumption that you often hear in Washington is that and, you know, we don't have to, why do we have to care about what Erdogan does to, to his own people as long as we, he behaves on the foreign policy front? And to me, again, that as someone who cares deeply about Turkish democracy, I found that very outrageous. So uh, the book was an attempt to challenge those views, to say that actually Erdogan's foreign policy behavior cannot be divorced from the regime type. In Turkey, right? So if Erdogan paved the way for a more democratic country, we would see a different uh, Turkey on the foreign policy front. And the second thing I was, the second case that I wanted to make in the book was that Islamism is only part of the problem, but it's not the entire picture because Erdogan is first and foremost a populist 
and and populism is 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 a is a style really. It's not an ideology, meaning it doesn't offer solutions to economic, social, political problems. So what populists end up doing is they match their populist style with different ideologies. So that's exactly what Erdogan did. Uh, so when he came to power, he framed himself as a conservative democrat, and it took uh, the two terms for him to, to turn into an Islamist. So that's why I wanted to shed light on that. And if you look at all his steps in Syria since he came to power in 2002, you just you can trace that transformation perfectly, I think. I wanted to ask about I mean, the, the subhead of the book is a strong man's struggle at home and in Syria. And one of the, the points you uh, articulate in the book is that Erdogan, although he's uh, portrayed, especially of late as kind of the one man show in Turkey, he's he's had to bump up against constraints in Turkey to do the things that he's wanted to do. Can you talk a little bit about the struggle aspect of this because it's uh, I think something that gets missed in a lot of coverage of, of Erdogan in Turkey. That's exactly right. Uh, there, there, there are books written on Erdogan calling him a sultan uh, and, and I also wanted to challenge that idea as well because Erdogan had to operate, when he first came to power he had to operate in a uh, in an environment where his uh, his powers were curbed. He had just his party had just captured 34% of the vote, and yet uh, secularist establishment was still calling the shots. And that's why, uh, and hence the name of the uh, of the book is Erdogan's War, because politics was always um, a war for Erdogan, a war against his domestic opponents. So, uh, and those opponents changed over time. When he came to power, it was the military, first and foremost, the uh, secularist military, and then once he made sure that he sidelined them, then he turned his attention to the Kurds, to to minorities. So I think uh, it's 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 been a constant a war for him, and he didn't just act in an unrestrained environment. Uh, there were powers that he had to challenge, and he used foreign policy as a tool in that war against his domestic opponents. Let's talk a little bit about Erdogan. I'd like to start really uh, at the origins of the of justice and development, AKP or AKP. In the early 2000s, uh, Erdogan emerges at the head of this new party. What is what is AKP come out of? What is the political climate or the, the sort of tradition uh, from which Erdogan emerges onto the scene? He comes from an Islamist back background. He was the mayor of Istanbul in the 1990s and he was a successful mayor. And mid 1990s were characterized by years that saw the rise of political Islam as a very significant political force. The Islamist political party that Erdogan came from captured uh, municipalities, including Istanbul and Ankara in the 1990s. So that's and they mostly focus on the service-based politics because, again, uh, Turkey is the, the real power rested in the hands of the secularists. Islamist, political Islamist actors, they have to, to tread cautiously. And that's why they mostly focused on, instead of ideology, they mostly focused on the service-based politics where 
uh, they provided services and uh, and holding municipalities in that regard was very important for them to build a track record. And that's exactly what Erdogan did in the 1990s. So he built this track record as a man who get, gets things done. And later, uh, 1990s, of course, they were very difficult years. Turkey was a very unstable country, economic problems, uh, the, the terrorist attacks uh, were on the rise. Uh, uh, the country was ideologically divided along identity and cultural uh, lines. And we saw one coalition uh, government after another collapsing. And finally, an earthquake in 1999, which almost symbolized all the things that were wrong with the country. And Erdogan came to power against that background, promising, again, to get things done. And he blamed uh, previous governments as being not compatible enough, uh, not um, not being able to provide what the people need. And he criticized state institutions as not being responsive to to people's everyday needs. So he, he came... Uh, he, he framed himself as a, as an outsider and he blamed uh, the the corrupt elite and he came uh, to power in the name of the forgotten people and that message was very strong and resonated really well among uh, large constituencies that's uh, how he came to power so he uh, was seen as an outsider who could fix the broken system. He was seen as a man who could fix the country's broken economy and make uh, state institutions more responsive. And for a while, he delivered on those until he didn't. The first real uh, obstacle uh, you talk about this in the book, and uh, the first major battle that Erdogan needs needs to fight politically after. Kind of, you know, coming to power at the head of uh, AKP is with the military, the Turkish military. Can you talk a little bit? I, I think people are broadly familiar with the Turkish military's history as a political actor, the frequent, uh, you know, periodic coups, uh, its kind of involvement in in domestic politics. But what what was the relationship between Erdogan and the military in this initial period, and what did Erdogan? Uh, do specifically in the realm of foreign policy and his relationship with Syria and, uh, you know, other parts of the Middle East, certainly, and also with the European Union, which is another uh, thing where I think he's changed quite a bit or the, the relationship has changed quite a bit. Uh, and how does that relate to his uh, relationship with the military? Well, Turkish military, it was uh, one of the institutions considered the, the bastion of Turkish secularism. So they played a very outsized role in politics and they wouldn't interfere in in the daily affairs of Turkish politics, uh, the military. But on the other hand, it had its own red lines and it wouldn't compromise on those red lines. One of them was Kurdish separatism and the second one was Islamic uh, political Islam. So they never uh, compromised on, on those and they intervened in politics when necessary. But Turkish military was never... Um, uh, what, what we saw in uh, in other in, in Middle Eastern countries, where military carries out a coup and then they stay there forever. Uh, in Turkey, they intervened uh, at times when they thought uh, that the country's foundations, uh, secular foundations, uh, were going to be destroyed. They intervened when they thought civilian governments were not 
governing effectively, and then they stepped in and they stepped out immediately, handing handing power to to civilian governments. Um, and in in the nineteen nineties, uh, mid nineteen nineties, we had our first uh, Islamist government. This was the Welfare Party and Arbakan. He became the first uh, Islamist uh, prime minister. Um, and he was forced out of power, basically. And Erdogan knew that even though he had captured uh, 34%, he knew that it was not going to be easy for him to uh, to run a country where real power uh, rested in the hands hands of of military and and secularist establishment uh, so he had to tread cautiously he understood that if he wanted to survive politically he could not clash with the military directly and and foreign policy was very much part of it because one of the reasons why uh, military into a uh, forced uh, Arbakan, the previous Islamist prime minister out of power was uh, the tri- one of the trips he made to to Libya, where he talked about it was seen as military saw that trip as a, an Islamist prime minister's attempts to to mark uh, leave his mark, his Islamist mark on the country's foreign policy, and that really provoked the military. So Erdogan all along knew that military was going to be watching him very closely, and shortly after. He won the elections. Military issued a veiled threat saying, we are watching and we're going to intervene when necessary. So he knew that they were going to be watching him both on the, on what he does on the domestic front and on, on foreign policy front. So he did not want to clash with the military directly. And instead, he turned to foreign policy. So he promoted a very pro-EU pro-Western foreign policy, and particularly uh, that pro-EU leg was very important because his number one agenda was getting Turkey into the European Union because he understood that uh, an EU member Turkey would have to curb military's power in politics. So he carried out reforms in the name of making Turkey more democratic, uh, and it did. He did make Turkey more democratic initially, but on the other hand, what he was doing was he was actually trying to sideline what he saw as a major uh, threat uh, to his rule. And in the region, he uh, again did not want to provoke military, and he respected the military's red lines, meaning uh, before he cultivated close ties with the regional countries, he made sure that he had their backing in the fight against the PKK, which was uh, one of the red lines. And he wanted to make sure that that um, this Islamic solidarity, uh, uh, Muslim solidarity, those were not the terms mentioned by Erdogan when he was cultivating those ties, because again, he didn't want to provoke military. So foreign policy uh, was very much part of his, his domestic agenda and the image that he wanted to build uh, when he came to power, one of the first things he said was that he was not an Islamist anymore. And he used foreign policy to prove that, to substantiate that. Talk about Erdogan's relationship with Bashar al-Assad in this first period prior to the Arab Spring, because that's really, uh, I think, a, a great example of, of how he's trying to demonstrate that he's not an ideal ideologue. He's not going to cross the military's red lines here. He's working with 
uh, you know, Assad and they have a, a what seems like a pretty good relationship. Just in addition to that, it might be also interesting to use that relationship to reflect on his early relationship with the United States and Israel, which I understand has undergone a series of transformations. That's right. I think uh, with respect to to Syria, um, Syria is is uh, is a very important. Has always been an important country, both for the secularist establishment and and for Turkey, for for Erdogan. Several reasons for that, because Syria has always traditionally been seen as a country uh, using the PKK card against uh, against Turkey. There were other disagreements about sharing uh, water. Uh, uh, other foreign policy disagreements as well, and and they used um, this uh, this card, PKK card, uh, to Syria sheltered hosted PKK leader Abdullah Öcalan uh, in the 1990s. So that's why Syria was one of the re- one of the the countries which was seen as as a big national security threat by the secularist establishment. Iran was another one. Uh, because of the regime, the type of, of regime in, in Iran. So Erdogan, uh, when he first came to power, he, he kept, he cultivated, uh, not initially, not immediately, uh, but after a few years, he cultivated these friendly ties, but he first, um, signaled to the military that, uh, that Syria was on board in, in Turkey's fight against the PKK and that Syria was gonna back Turkey's fight. So he wanted to ease that anxiety among secularist establishment about Kurdish separatism. Um, uh, so, so when he did cultivate those close ties, he made sure that, uh, that he made no reference to the Islam, common Ottoman heritage, Islamic heritage. None of them was part of his, um, his, um, public messaging. Instead, he said, you know, we are investing in Syria. There are hundreds of Turkish corporations here, uh, doing business. So he framed his, his regional policy as one that focuses on trade and investment, uh, that would benefit Turkey after, uh, secured these regimes backing, uh, in, in the fight against the PKK. So that's why he cultivated even personal uh, close ties with, with, with Assad and, and here, I think we have to underline something that we don't talk about often, especially in the West, and that is, um, I mean, Turkish Islamists are not uh, are not a monolithic uh, group. Uh, th- there are diverse gr- groups among among Turkey's Islamists. Some of them, for instance, uh, Necmettin Arbakan, for instance, uh, the the previous uh, Islamist prime minister. He, uh, despite the Assad regime's killing of Muslim Brotherhood members in the Hama massacre in, the ni- in 1982, Erbakan was very cautious about Muslim Brotherhood's attempts to, to re- rebel against the Assad regime because Erbakan saw Syria as part of this axis of resistance against Israel. So he thought that uh, strengthening Bashar Assad regime was important and he encouraged the Muslim Brotherhood there not to rebel against Assad, thinking, saying that this would weaken the regime and that would strengthen Israel in the region. But Erdogan was not like that. He was very critical of, of Hama massacre. Uh, so that's why he's, he was more cautious and more skeptical vis-a-vis the Assad regime. And yet he put that aside to cultivate that friendly ties. And the goal was, again, not to provoke military. That's why we saw that that close partnership. So 
so Turkey worked closely with those regional autocrats. And that changed uh, in uh, late 2010 and early 2011 when the Arab uprisings erupted. So then what's going on with Erdogan in the U.S.? What does the U.S. think of him? What does he think of the U.S.? How does he relate to being in NATO, for example, which is, of course, a topic that has recently gotten a lot of discussion? I'd love to hear about that in his early period. Yeah, so it's, you will find this really, uh, really, uh, surprising, I think, because Erdogan, when he first came to power, he, uh, he was, um, a very pro-Western, uh, politician. And he wanted to secure U.S. backing even before the elections. Washington was one of the first capitals that he visited. Uh, this was, I think, in t- 2011 and wanted to hold talks with American, uh, American officials. So securing U.S. backing was important. Uh, and remember after U.S. invasion of Iraq, uh, it, well, Americans wanted to use Turkish territory to open another front in the invasion. Uh, and at the time, Turkish parliament refused that request by, by the Americans. Uh, and a lot of people blamed the new government, the new AKP government, uh, arguing that, oh, it's because they are Islamists and that's why they don't, uh, they, they don't want to grant this request. But the real, I think the most interesting factor there was Erdogan himself personally really wanted the parliament to pass that motion because he wanted Americans to be on his side. But uh, there were other figures, and at the time, he didn't have full control over his party, and there were strong, very ideological, strong Islamists in the party ranks, and they they were the ones who refused. So this just tells you how pragmatic Erdogan has always been. Uh, And and uh, starting from 2011, but more so, I think, from 2015, and 2015 is an important year, because that was when Erdogan lost the parliamentary majority, um, and he turned to Turkey's nationalists to secure that that majority back. Uh, and since 2015, Turkey has been pursuing a very anti-Western uh, foreign policy, um, and and uh, that was one of the reasons I think uh, that nationalist alliance was one of the reasons why Erdogan cultivated closer ties with Russia, because the nationalists are are pushing for a more anti-NATO, anti-American foreign policy. Uh, They want Turkey to be more independent and cultivate closer ties with countries like Russia and China. Uh, And and that's why I think Turkey's foreign policy took an anti-Western turn, especially after 2015, although it didn't, I think things were problematic before. Uh, But I think U.S.-American relations hit rock bottom in 2014, and that was when Americans decided to uh, airdrop weapons to the Syrian Kurdish militia fighting against ISIS. So I think that was the that was a turning point in Turkey-U.S. ties, and it's all downhill from that point onwards. Although things have changed slightly recently, especially since 2019, that was when Erdogan lost municipal elections, and he uh, understood that that very unilateral, militaristic, anti-Western foreign policy was not going to work for him. So he made many U-turns on the foreign policy front, and uh, trying to mend ties with the Western countries was part of that. What can we say about Erdogan's uh, view of Turkey in the world, or or let's say in uh, its own region, and then more broadly in the world? The, the most common 
again, oversimplification that, that gets tossed around in the West is that his, his foreign policy is neo-Ottomanist, uh, which I think obscures a lot of changes that he's gone through, a lot of shifts from, you know, as you uh, have talked about this early period, there's a sort of no problems with neighbors approach. The, we want to focus on business, not conflict. Uh, so, so it's changed quite a bit. But can we can we find a through line in terms of uh, where he feels Turkey should should be uh, both kind of regionally and then and then in the bigger picture? Uh, well, Erdogan really uh, the way, and if you listen to his campaign uh, speeches too, he he is trying to uh, make Turkey great again in in uh, in, a, in a sense that uh, you know he wants Turkey to be an independent power, a power that uh, he sees himself as a world leader who can stand up to West and he can uh, he can. Uh, uh, protect, and this is in his own words, uh, he sees himself as the, uh, the leader of the Ummah, the protector of the Muslim nation. So he has, it's that image that he's been trying to build. And of course, the Arab uprisings helped him burnish that image because when the Arab uprisings erupted, he said, uh, Arabs are trying to get rid of their own uh, corrupt secularist elite. Uh, he was referring to, to the Turkey's, um, uh, secularist party CHP, um, and and but when he threw his support behind uh, those Islamist movements trying to topple the autocratic regimes in the region, he framed that support as a support given to uh, to pro democracy forces in the region. Um, and at the time, uh, people on the Arab streets, I, I think a lot of people loved that. Because here you had the leader of a country which is a NATO member, which is an aspiring, a country that is trying to be a, a become an EU member, uh, and he is just standing up for the, for the rights of the people. So he he got very popular on the Arab street. But if you talk to uh, the regimes across the region, obviously he was seen as uh, as uh, interfering in their domestic affairs and later on after turkey intervened militarily into syria he was framed as uh, an occupier of arab lands um things are different now because of many of the u-turns that he's made in the region um and i think the, the regional countries have all or their approaches to the region itself has changed as well um but but if you look at Erdogan's, how the Western world views Erdogan, uh, they see him as a problematic partner, obviously. Um, but on the other hand, they see him as, uh, someone who has lots of, creates lots of problems for the West and yet they have to work with him. And I've seen that very clearly after the invasion of Ukraine, before the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm in Washington and I, I, uh, watch what people on the Hill say very closely about Turkey. And there were a lot of critical uh, voices, people who think that why are we even working with Erdogan now? He's, he's just become too pro Russia. But the invasion of Ukraine changed some of that perception. Uh, now many are saying that yes, he's not, he's not a, a great partner and yet we have to work with him. So I think Erdogan is using this uh, Turkey's strategic location and it's Turkey as a, as a large army that is also very important for the West. 
um, to get away with what he's doing on the domestic front, right? So that's why we're seeing this transactional relationship between Turkey and the Western world, where even this administration in the US, a Biden administration was promised to make democracy and human rights the backbone of its foreign policymaking, doesn't say anything about um, what Erdogan does to his own own people. It's mainly because of that, the nature of that transactional relationship. So no matter what they think of him, they will continue to work with him. I, I think I, I want to talk about the the Turkish response to the Arab Spring because obviously that's a that's a huge inflection point in the story. But but in the background to this uh, is Erdogan's uh, handling, let's say, of the Kurdish issue. Can you talk in kind of broad terms uh, about how his approach uh, to the Kurds and the PKK has changed uh, over the course of his rule? I mean, he comes in as somebody who seems like he's intent on resolving that conflict. And, and now we're, we're here, you know, 20 uh, plus years later in, in much the opposite uh, direction. Well, uh, he's changed course very f- frequently. I remember uh, in 2005, he went to Diyarbakir. Diyarbakir is a Kurdish majority town in southern Turkey, and it's considered it's a v- very important uh, town for Turkish Kurds. He delivered this talk in 2005, which I thought was was very brave. Say, admitting that Turkish state had made mistakes in handling the country's Kurdish problem. And he framed Kurdish problem not just as a terror problem, which is the, uh, the, the typical secularist line, but also a social and economic problem. And he promised to address all those different angles. So that was a very progressive talk. Uh, and a brave one. Um, and in 2009, um, he launched a, uh, a Kurdish opening, a peace process with the Kurds in an effort to grant some cultural rights to Kurds. And, uh, in return, obviously, tur- Turkish Kurds are a large, large constituency, uh, some, somewhere between eight to, to 13, uh, to 12, 13 point, uh, percent of the vote. So he wanted their, uh, he wanted to secure their backing in return. Uh, but that Kurdish opening was very promising, especially for liberal people like me, who've always considered the country's Kurdish problem as, as a huge one for, for country's democracy. That was a very promising thing. And in 2009, it failed. And I think because, uh, the PR side of things were not really carried out efficiently. The people, Turkish society was not ready. Uh, so it failed. But later on, after the Arab uprisings began in 2012, there was another opening. Um, and at the time, I think Erdogan's goal there was he wanted to grant these rights to Kurds, not out of the goodness of his heart, but he, he had, he had a goal at home and that was switching from a, a parliamentary system to a, a an executive presidency that would grant unprecedented powers to, to himself. So that's why he wanted to secure the backing of this important key constituency. And that's why he launched this Kurdish opening. And also developments in Syria kind of pushed him uh, towards that. Um, but uh, I, I think the opening there, it, it, it failed. 
uh, there was a ceasefire in, in place between the, between Turkish state and, and the Kurdish militants. But that failed. And, and I think Syria, again, once again, played an important role there. Why, why that peace process failed? Uh, from the Kurdish point of view, I think Kurds in Turkey realized they, their hopes were up, especially after Americans airdrop weapons to the Syrian Kurdish militia. They thought that they were on the verge of uh, establishing a Kurdish state with American help. Uh, I remember traveling across the region at that time, talking to the to, Tur- to Turkish Kurds. They were very hopeful, very optimistic. They thought that it was a historic moment for them. So I think developments in Syria got their hopes up and they were not going to settle for what they thought was cosmetic changes from Erdogan. Uh, from Erdogan's point of view, I think he realized that he would never secure Kurdish backing for uh, for his autocratic project because the Kurdish teacher, Kurdish leader in the country launched an election campaign saying that we're not going to make you president. Uh, and I think that's when Erdogan realized that this was not going to work, that he needed a new strategy. And that strategy came in right after he lost the elections. And he lost 20, the elections in 2015 mainly because of um, uh, the pro-Kurdish party's historic success, which denied Erdogan's party the parliamentary majority. So Erdogan decided to ally himself with Turkey's nationalists and embarked on a very anti-Kurdish agenda. Um, and that really, that really changed things. And since then, he has been uh, riding that nationalist wave. And he frames Turkey's Kurds as terrorists. He's been attacking even the legitimate uh, Kurdish political uh, movement. Uh, and uh, and even this time around in this uh, election campaign, um, he managed to mobilize his supporters behind him despite all the problems that the country is facing by basically linking the opposition to Kurdish separatists and, and terrorists. Uh, so he, he managed to exploit that, that social uh, cleavage very efficiently. Let's talk about Erdogan's reaction to the Arab Spring movement, 2011-2012. Um, it, it's, it's interesting to me, this, this seems to mark his uh, defined sort of the, this shift to more overt, Islamism, uh, but for Erdogan, I'm curious what what motivates that. I mean, you you said he comes out of an Islamist tradition, but he's a populist. He describes himself as no longer an Islamist during this early part of his uh, when he's prime minister in this first period. Uh, but the Arab Spring comes along. We have Islamist parties in Tunisia and then Egypt uh, coming to power. The, the same thing looks like it might happen in Syria. Is it is it a question of kind of seeing which way the wind is blowing and trying to get ahead of that? Or uh, is there something else going on when Erdogan kind of adopts this, uh, you know, pro-rebel, anti-Assad uh, stance? No, it's always uh, about his domestic calculations to stay in power and centralize power. That's the, the main argument of the book. Foreign policy is never first and foremost about international pulls and pushes for him. It's always about 
his domestic consolidation of power. So when he makes all those U-turns, you just have to, to understand why he's making those U-turns on the foreign policy front. You have to understand what's going on at home. So 20, uh, when he decided to topple uh, Bashar Assad uh, starting from t- 2011, that was because he had just won another victory, election victory, and, and he set his eyes on a new goal, and that was um, establishing an executive uh, presidency. And he wanted to secure the backing of not just Kurds, but also Islamists and conservatives. Uh, so that's why he built an image for himself as the protector of Muslims, the leader of the Ummah, the Muslim nation. And he embarked on an Islamist agenda at home by injecting Islam into public sphere, into the country's education system. So the Arab uprisings came at the perfect time for him, giving him the opportunity to take that agenda beyond Turkey's borders and burnish his image as this a strong Sunni Muslim leader who will protect Muslims across the world. Uh, so he, that's how he decided to topple what he called a godless Alevi regime in Syria. Um, but in 2015, when his domestic calculations changed, his priorities in Syria changed as well, because at home, starting from 2015, his number one goal became he 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 adopted a very anti-Kurdish agenda at home, uh, and that translated into an anti-Kurdish agenda in the region, and that meant toppling the regime took a backseat to curbing Kurdish um, influence in northern Syria. And now another turning point is happening. Erdogan wants to shake hands with with uh, with Assad. And that's, again, that has something to do with his domestic calculations because there's a, there's a strong nationalist backlash against Syrian refugees. And, and he thinks, um, shaking hands with, with President Assad, uh, is the only viable solution to send the refugees back home. There's another, I, I think, event that, that we haven't talked about in addition to you know, you've mentioned the 2015 election where uh, Erdogan's kind of uh, you know turns toward the nationalists to uh, secure a parliamentary majority and this kind of marks I think another shift uh, in his presentation but there's also the attempted coup in 2016 can you talk a little bit about uh, what happened there and the fallout in terms of you know both the uh, uh, kind of the security, the state security apparatus, but also the Gulenists, uh, who kind of took, took some of the brunt of the, the post coup, uh, repercussions. What is, what is that? What did the, the 2016 event do for, for Erdogan in terms of his shifting uh, politics? It, as he said on the night of the coup, it was a gift from God for him. It allowed him to consolidate power even further. So he not only went after the Gulenists, whom he accused of orchestrating the coup, but he went after critics, everyone, journalists, even even comedians, artists, everyone who was critical of Erdogan's autocratic agenda became became uh, the victim. Uh, so 2016 coup attempt really consolidated power. Uh, in, in Erdogan's hand, and it also strengthened his alliance with the nationalists. 
um, he cleans Turkey's tried to cleanse the country's institutions of of, of Gülenists, and he placed uh, his nationalist allies uh, in those polls. So starting from 2000, I would say 2015 was the, the, the was the, the beginning of that process, but 2016 strengthened that alliance between Erdogan and uh, and the nationalists, and that of course translated into a very anti-Western and at times anti-NATO anti, uh, and pro-Russia uh, policy, foreign policy. We're coming up on a point where I think we could uh, wrap up, but I have a couple of uh, a couple more questions. One is, um, uh, can you talk a little bit about the party, the Justice and Development Party, AKP, and, and how it has changed over time, both in terms of structure, uh, we've had frequent purges of, you know, other prominent uh, party leaders to leave Erdogan as sort of the last man standing, uh, and ideologically, uh, how it's morphed over time. And, and what what does that say about uh, Erdogan's development over the course of the past couple of decades? Well, if take Erdogan out of the picture, there is no AKP. Um, it's become. Was that always the case, though? I mean, I feel like he he was the first among equals m- more in the in the early going, but now it's really uh, like one man operation. That's right. That 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 wasn't the case in the early years. The AKP served an important function. They they became the face of of the government, and they became the hands of the government, reaching to people uh, in in Anatolia. So those local party branches became almost be, became the connecting point where uh, you have leaders at the top and, and party uh, was was in the middle, uh, kind of channeling demands uh, to, um, to, to the leadership and then and then distributing uh, resources too. But over, over uh, the years it has become uh, really a very corrupt entity. So if you want to get anything done, anything at all from from scheduling a doctor's appointment to getting a, a building permit, uh, you just need to find someone from from the ruling party. And I think that's one of the reasons why, despite everything, he um, Erdogan still holds a significant. He has a significant following in the country because that party structure. Uh, Erdogan established a. a a vast um, clientelistic network, and the AKP played a big role in that. But again, after 20 years, I think uh, it's uh, it's really uh, the party became the f- became the face of corruption. While previously, in early years, it was the party that uh, represented the people and and transferred and channeled their demands and needs to to government officials. That's not the case anymore, and that's why I think. Uh, if Erdogan is not around, AKP uh, is going to have difficulty, um, will struggle uh, with survival. We've kind of avoided talking about the election because I don't want this episode to be too heavily news dependent. Uh, we want it to, to kind of stand on its own. But, but you know, to, to uh, be clear, we're recording this. Uh, shortly after the the first round of the Turkish uh, general election, Erdogan looks like he's been forced to a runoff, but it looks like uh, he will probably win the runoff. He seemed, I would certainly 
uh, say he would be the favorite going into the runoff uh, as it shapes up. Uh, so let's, I think we can talk a little bit about, uh, or, or sort of, uh, look ahead to, to what may come next. Uh, and as sort of a, a way to wrap up, uh, you've, we've talked a lot about Erdogan's shifting persona from kind of a, a Democrat, uh, in a broad sense to, you know, more overtly Islamist now to, uh, more nationalist. As it stands now, he's trying to, uh, of course, make up with Assad and uh, he's positioned, he's trying to position Turkey uh, and his relationship with Vladimir Putin as a sort of peacemaker in Ukraine. Uh, are we seeing, I mean, is there is there any indication that he's uh, making any, you know, another shift in a different direction or uh, are, are we seeing Erdogan in his final form, do you think? What what do you kind of look ahead to, to what the future may hold for for Erdogan and, and Turkish foreign policy. Well, they're just he's facing the country is facing so many existential problems. I think from a double digit inflation, faltering economy, um, the country was hit by a massive earthquake recently. Institutions are not working. The government's response to the earthquake was slow. Corruption is widespread. So. If this was a democracy, Erdogan would not be around. But the problem is, um, despite all those things, he still has a, has a large following. And I think that's mainly because Turkey has become, under Erdogan, such a polarized country that it's really both parties, both sides, see this as an existential uh, war. So from Erdogan's supporters' point of view, they understand that uh, economic problems are serious and some of them blame Erdogan for those things too. Uh, but they, because they see this as an existential threat, if the opposition uh, becomes the government, they feel like uh, they're not going to survive in a country under um, uh, under an opposition government. So that's why uh, they are not willing to vote him out. Um, and then you have, you have the other half of the country who thinks that we are suffocating here. Uh, we don't see a future for, for ourselves, for our children in this country. So they see it as an existential threat too. So that polarization is making, um, uh, making it very difficult for pro-democracy forces to beat Erdogan at the ballot box. So, um, as you said, he's going into the second round in, in an advantageous position and, uh, he might do what he's been doing best, which is playing to people's fears and anxieties and frame the opposition as terrorists, as pro LGBTQ, play the culture wars. It's worked for him. It's working for him. Um, and if he secures another term, Expect more repression and more political prisoners in Turkish jails. Gunnar Toll, again, the book is uh, Erdogan's War, A Strongman's Struggle at Home and in Syria. You guys should go pick it up. We'll have a link to do that in the show description. Gunnar, thank you so much again for coming on the program. Thanks for having me.